Welcome to PantherCast, the official podcast of TMI Episcopal, where we share stories from our alumni, updates about the school, and help you reconnect and discover what the TMI community is all about. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us for TMI's PantherCast. I'm your host, Stephanie Gish, Director of Community Relations, and joining me today is David McGill, TMI Class of 1972 and Steadicam Operator since 1989. David is here to share his journey of getting started in the film industry to becoming a freelance camera and Steadicam Operator. A veteran in the field, David has over 25 years experience in the motion picture industry and has worked on everything from documentaries and corporate videos to network TV series and feature films. He is adept at operating cameras in many configurations, including studio, Steadicam, handheld, and remote head. He's a graduate of the University of Texas at Austin, where he studied business and film. Thank you so much for talking with me today, David, and welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. So you graduated TMI in 1972, and then you went on to study film at UT Austin. Did you always know that you wanted to be a part of the film industry? Uh, No, actually... um when I first went off to UT, I was not studying film at all uh, in the beginning. Uh, I, initially, I started out as an engineering student, and I didn't, I didn't do too well my first semester because I was a little bit uh, too distracted with uh, college life. And so I switched to business, and, and that was really um, just kind of a means to an end. I just was looking to get a degree because my plan at that time was actually to be a pilot. And I planned on going into the Air Force and being a pilot and getting out and uh, becoming an airline pilot. So it was kind of a roundabout way of getting into the film business. Um, my first love was flying. And actually, the summer between my junior and senior year at TMI, I worked at Stinson Field and uh, arranged to get paid in flying lessons. And I did end up getting my pilot's license at the end of the summer. And, again, my plan was to go into the Air Force and, and be a pilot. Well, as things would have it, at the, um, towards the end of my senior year, when I was in, I was in Air Force ROTC at UT, and um, we started getting out of the Vietnam War. And prior to that time, they had been building up quite a pipeline of pilots because they were using them up uh, very mm-hmm. quickly. Either, you know, either they were getting shot down or they were just, you know, doing their time and getting out Mm -hmm. and moving on. So they needed a lot of pilots. But when we started to get out of Vietnam, they no longer had this big need for pilots. By the time I got my senior year, they were having these screening boards and they would um, take everybody across the whole country who was in the uh, pilot training pipeline through, you know, ROTC or whatever um, avenue they were going. And they would have a screening board, they would look at your record, and they would put everybody's record in a rank order, and then they would draw a line uh, at some point with how many pilots they needed. Well, I made it through all of the screening boards except my very last one, obviously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, they put me, uh, nationwide, I was number 179 on the list, but they only took 150 people into the pilot training program that that year. Wow. So I missed it by nine. <laughs> wow. So um, 
I tried to get into some of the other branches as in the, in the pilot training program. I tried the Navy, but they were kind of in the same boat. And I applied to the Marines, and they were going to take me. But before I could report, they had the class that I was going to report to. I had to um, go through, even though I was already commissioned a second lieutenant in the Air Force, I had to resign that commission and go to the Marine Corps OCS training because there's a right way to do things, a wrong way to do things, and the Marine Corps way to do things. <laughs> yes, indeed. So, <laughs> so uh, that class was canceled, and it was going to be like, I don't know, maybe I think another nine months or a year or something like that before they had another opening. So I said, well, forget it. I'll just, I'll just go ahead and go on active duty in the Air Force and you know, take my chances there. But before that happened, the Marine recruiter called me back and said, we have an opening in the class in, starting in February. So I said, okay, I'll go. Mm -hmm. So I went to Quantico in uh, February of 77, got commissioned as a second lieutenant of the Marines. And at that point, I was guaranteed again to go to pilot training. But all Marine officers have to go through, once they're commissioned, they have to go through something called uh, the basic school. It's a extensive, I think about at that time, it was about five months long training of just basically how to be a a Marine officer, a Marine second lieutenant. But anyway, um, a month before I got out of that school, I got stung by a wasp and turned out to be allergic to them. I had to go to the hospital. Uh, if I hadn't gone to the hospital when I did, I would have died because I, I was going into what they call anaphylactic shock. Of course, the Marines said, well, we're not going to you know, spend millions of dollars training you and send you up in a multi-million dollar aircraft to have it all brought down by a little insect. Mm -hmm. So they wouldn't let me go to pilot training. So I stayed in for three years, and then I got out, and I wasn't really sure what I was going to do at that point, and um, kind of bounced around a little bit. And I ended up coming back to San Antonio, and that was when I got the idea that uh, I wanted to go into the film business. Because my second love, uh, I had always loved photography, but mostly had been involved in still photography, although there was one particular day with a bunch of my friends from TMI, which we made kind of this little epic eight millimeter film involving the launching of a small tissue paper, nine foot hot air balloon, which we launched over at Fort Sam Houston. Mm -hmm. And it landed in the cement quarry, which was right next to TMI, which is now a golf course. <laughs> but uh, anyway, that's a whole other story. So anyway, I, I decided to go back to school. So in January of 82, I went back to the University of Texas in Austin and took film courses. And I took a full load that first semester and a full load in the summer sessions. And then in the fall, I was just taking a couple of classes. And just so happened that one of my instructors, a guy named Lauren Bivens, was working closely with the Cohen brothers who were in Austin shooting their very first movie, which was called Blood Simple. And it was um, kind of a low-budget independent film, and he told us about it. I figured, well, you know, what, what have I got to lose? I'm going to go out there and say, you know, I'd like to volunteer to work on your movie just to learn, you know. And, uh, and they said, okay, they, they took my name and phone number, and they said, we'll, we'll call you if we need you. And literally the next day, they called and said, can you come in and start working tomorrow? <laughs> and I said, Yeah. What had happened was they had um, they had shot their first week 
and there was a lot of people that weren't working out. So they were firing some people and rearranging some people, and they needed some production assistants. A production assistant, for people who don't know in the, in the business, is uh, pretty much an entry-level position. A lot of people start out working as a production assistant. It's called, uh, they call them a PA. And it's just kind of a, a general helping run the set. And as a production assistant, you'll do anything, you know, from like running errands, helping to control the, um, the extras, the, doing traffic control, you know, keeping people quiet on set when they're rolling. So anyway, mm-hmm. I got on with um, that movie. We were working six-day weeks. And the standard work day in, on a film set is 12 hours. And so we're working 72 hours a week on average. And I was getting paid $150 a week flat. <laughs> but I was there to learn. I didn't, didn't really care. You know, I probably would have done it for free. Wow. <laughs> and it was a wonderful experience. So Blood Simple uh, was the first thing I ever worked on. This was uh, the fall of 1982. Film was directed by the Coen Brothers. It was their first feature film, and working on it was really interesting because, as a production assistant, I got to kind of help out on the fact that it was a smaller film. I got to kind of help out in different departments and and learn a lot. We had some really good people on there. Had a lot of people that were very green and didn't really know that much about what they were doing. But we were shooting a movie and we were doing it, you know, the way movies are always shot. So that was my first uh, experience working on uh, a film. What drew you to the camera versus wanting to direct or act or do any of the other different parts that you can do in the film industry? Mm-hmm. Well, as I said, uh, my, my second love as photography. And um, I'm still not exactly sure why I didn't choose to go into still photography as opposed to the motion picture business. Mm-hmm. I think part of it has to do with working with part of a team. One of the things that I really like about the film business is filmmaking is probably one of the only truly collaborative art forms. It, mm-hmm. it takes a small army to, to make a film. You, you know, sure, you can make little films with, you know, um, very, very few people. But, but really, to, to do it well and to do it right, it, it, it takes a small army. And it's to me, it's very similar to a military operation. You have, you have a bunch of very skilled, very enthusiastic people that, you know, they have all this equipment. You go out in the middle of nowhere sometimes or different places every day and set up all of this equipment for 12 to 14 hours. And then you pack it all up and, and you know, go to the next place. Mm-hmm. And, and everybody knows their job. And uh, because the film business is all freelance, it, it tends to weed people out who don't know their job. Sure, they're always hiring new people and they have to learn their way, but you know, the, the, the main people really have to know what they're doing and they have to be able to perform and deliver. And it's, it can be you know, pretty stressful and, and high pressure at times, but, mm-hmm. uh, but it's a lot of fun. It's interesting. It's always different. Anyway, after Blood Simple, obviously I wasn't making enough money doing that kind of work. So I went back to San Antonio and I ended up working freelance for some of the local production companies and and rental houses there in San Antonio. And I worked on 
local car commercials and appliance store commercials and, you know, stuff like that. Were you doing the camera operation at that point or still production assisting? I was doing a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I was doing uh, a little bit of camera work. I was doing lighting and grip and, and all kinds of stuff. I even, one time, after I'd been in the business for a few years, the soap opera General Hospital came to shoot in San Antonio. And they came to San Antonio to to have it double as being Mexico. They were actually supposed to be in Mexico. But anyway, I was out of town actually uh, at that time taking my my first Steadicam workshop where I learned how to be a Steadicam operator. And by the time I got back in town from that, all of the jobs that I would have normally wanted to do had been filled. And the only thing left for me to do was in the art department as a swing gang in the set dressing department. <laughs> so what we ended up doing is we would go to a warehouse and load up all this set dressing stuff, which is, you know, everything from furniture, decorations, you know, whatever that it takes to to have a set. Mm-hmm. And then we'd take it out and we'd set it all up. And, and then we'd, uh, at the end of the day, pack it all up and take it back to the warehouse and unload it and load a whole different load of stuff on. And uh, and then go out the next day and do the same thing all over again, and and that was that was where I learned that I really did not want to be in the art department. <laughs> it's it is hard work, and it's like it's exhausting. <laughs> it well, it's yeah, and it, all of the you know all of the jobs in the film business are can be exhausting. But the thing that I like about camera as opposed to set dressing is yeah, we're still dealing with a lot of stuff, and and it's can be pretty heavy at times but in the camera department we're dealing with basically the same stuff every day i mean we get special pieces of equipment that'll come in you know for certain situations but overall we're using the same cameras lenses tripods heads you know whatever else that that we're using and you know we just use it the same stuff every day plus the other thing about the camera department that i really like is the fact that we're the ones who are actually making the movie. Mm -hmm. We're the ones who are actually putting it on film. And one of the things that I came to realize, this is kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but probably within the last 10 years or so as a, as a camera operator, Mm -hmm. um, I came to really appreciate how fortunate I was and privileged I was to be a camera operator because this entire crew, everybody, the, uh, from the production assistants, all the way up to the producers and directors, the writers, set dressing, costumes, makeup, the actors, grips and electricians, all of them, they're all working really hard to put this scene in front of my camera, and I'm the one who gets to photograph it. And photographing it, capturing it, is really an art form, too. What you do is truly an art form to be able to capture that in just the right way. Yeah. Uh, well, it is, and and it's um, and it's a lot of fun, and it's and it's something that I just I do it basically all the time, even when I'm not working. I have one of the great one of the greatest things about the invention of the smartphone, the mm-hmm. iPhones, that they, everybody's got a camera in their pocket, yeah. and if I see something interesting, I just pull my camera out and take a picture of it, or if it needs to be video, I'll do a little video of it, and it's just something I love to do just just for my own enjoyment so tell me a little bit more about the steadicam operation because you got into that 
Pretty much as the Steadicam was becoming a new art form, I believe the Steadicam was introduced in 1975 and you started using it around 89. How did you know that was the path to take? Well, it's interesting because I forget exactly which year it was, but there was one year where Garrett Brown, who's the inventor of Steadicam, and the Steadicam won an Academy Award for technical achievement. And as anyone who's watched the Academy Awards uh, regularly, they, they know that normally the awards for technical achievement are given at a different ceremony at a different night, and they'll give you a little rundown of what they did. But Steadicam was so revolutionary and made people could see that it was going to make such an impact on the industry that they presented the Academy Award to Garrett Brown during the regular Academy Award ceremony. And I remember watching it. Uh, they had Garrett out on stage and there was a big staircase on the back part of the stage coming down downstage. And a guy, an operator, Steadicam operator, came out and he was wearing a tux because he's at the Academy Awards, but he also had the Steadicam on. Mm -hmm. And he had a live camera on the Steadicam. And so they were cutting between the shot of him walking down the stairs and the shot that he was shooting. And you could see this beautiful, smooth, steady shot as this guy is walking down the stairs. And if you tried to do that, you know, with a handheld camera, it, you know, it wouldn't look very good unless you were trying to go for like an action sequence, you know. And I saw that, and it just really intrigued me. And that was actually before I had even decided to go into the film business. But it stuck in my mind, and when I did finally go into the film business, it was very, very soon that, that I made the decision that that's what I was going to do. And so I did that first movie, Blood Simple, um, in 1982. The very next summer, summer of '83. Uh, a woman who was the location manager on Blood Simple was producing another little uh, low-budget independent film in Austin in the summer of 83, and she knew that I was interested in camera, and she called me up and asked me if I wanted to be the camera operator on that movie. I got, uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> of course. You know, it's like normally it takes a very long time for a person to work up to being a camera operator. But here I was being uh, offered it, hadn't even been working in the business a year. And, and so with the money that I made working on that film was enough for me to pay for the Steadicam workshop to learn how to operate a Steadicam. Wow. And that workshop was held out in California at Squaw Valley, which is right next to Lake Tahoe. And it was it was a small group of people. There was probably maybe 25 or 30 of us, and they had a couple of instructors, one of them who worked for the company uh, Cinema Products, which was the company that manufactured Steadicam at that time, and, and a couple of assistant instructors. And it was a week-long intensive course, and at the end of that, we were all operating Steadicam. I didn't have the equipment. Uh, at, from almost the very beginning, it was kind of expected that a Steadicam operator would own his own equipment. Mm -hmm. Including the camera as well? No, just the okay. Steadicam. Um, the Steadicam is just, is just uh, the device that you mount the camera on. 
There's three basic parts to the Steadicam system. There's a harness that you wear on your body, and then there's a mechanical arm, which is like a super heavy-duty version of a desk lamp. You know how the a articulated mm-hmm. desk lamp's got two arms, and you can move it around wherever you want, and it mm-hmm. stays held there by springs and stuff? So the arm of the Steadicam is kind of like that. It kind of mimics your own arm. There's an upper section and a lower section, just like your upper arm and forearm. And then there is the camera platform, which got the nickname of sled, as in, as, as in a bobsled or something like that, which, is, which came from the way the very first Model 1 Steadicam looked. The bottom of it looked kind of like a bobsled. Mm. And so from that point on, that camera platform part of the system was referred to as a sled. Those are the three parts. And connecting the, the sled, the, the camera platform, to the arm is a gimbal. And a gimbal is something that just allows the, the camera platform to move in any direction. It can rotate and it can tilt in any direction. And this whole system, all it's meant to do is to isolate your body movement from the camera. Mm-hmm. And another thing that makes it work is that the mass of the, of the sled has been stretched out. The camera is mounted on the top. And then you have a long post that's anywhere from, I don't know, as short as 18 inches to up to two and a half feet long. And then at the bottom of that post are the batteries that power the camera and also a monitor, a video monitor. Because you cannot put your eye on an eyepiece to operate a Steadicam because your eye would be bumping into the camera and making it move when you didn't want mm-hmm. to. So it's like, kind of like a pendulum. That center post is hanging in the gimbal and it is just slightly bottom heavy so that if it's not doing anything, if you're standing still and it's just sitting there, it's going to hang vertical. You have to be able to adjust it to balance it and trim it so that it hangs that way. But once you've done that, it will just hang vertical. And one of the big things about stretching that mass out is you move the center of gravity of the system out of the body of the camera. A handheld camera the center of gravity of the camera is in the middle of the camera, pretty Mm -hmm. close. And so when you move the camera around, it is rotating, like if you're handheld, it's rotating around all of the axes around that center of gravity that is inside the camera. And what that ends up doing is imparting a lot of motion to the image. So what you do is you move that center of gravity way outside the camera, and that greatly dampens the, that motion. I, I've, actually, I have a video on YouTube of me explaining how it works and, and demonstrating it, so you can maybe put a link to that. Yeah, definitely send me that link, because I'll put that in there. That'd be interesting. So, and, and then, then if you look at the video and listen to what I just said, it'll make a lot more sense. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so I, I, I learned how to operate Steadicam in it was 1983 when I went to the workshop, but I couldn't afford to, to buy my own equipment at that point. And so I, at, at one point, I almost gave up on Steadicam. I was working actually as an assistant cameraman. I had, I had moved to Dallas in 1986 and was working as an assistant cameraman and had kind of given up on Steadicam because it just was, I just wasn't getting much call for it. And, and if I did, I would have to rent the equipment mm-hmm. and it, it just wasn't happening. And then I had kind of a windfall. There was a 
a piece of uh, family-owned real estate that sold, and with my share of it, which was about $25,000, I was able to buy my first uh, used Steadicam. Oh, wow. And as, as soon as I found out that I was going to get money, I started looking around, and there was a guy uh, in L.A. who had worked for um, Cinema Products, the company that built Steadicam, and he had gone out on his own, and he was brokering them. He was buying and selling used Steadicams, repairing them, that kind of stuff. And so I saw his ad in, in uh, American Cinematographer, and I called him up. And he says, well, it just so happens that I've got this great Model 3. The Model 3 had not been out very long. Mm-hmm. And uh, he could sell it for $25,000, and which wow. is, oddly enough, the same amount of money that I had. So it took me a while to actually get the money, but I finally got it, and I got the Steadicam. But as a Steadicam operator, once you get the Steadicam, that's just really half of the picture, because then you have to have all kinds of accessories and other pieces of equipment to go with it. How much does it all end up weighing once you put all the gear on and you're ready to shoot, how much does it weigh? Is it easy to work with? Well, it, it of course, depends on the camera. And um, I know that, fortunately, these days, uh, cameras are lighter, mm-hmm. so it, it's not as heavy as it used to be. But one of my heavier setups, I, I decided to weigh it. And people always want to ask how much it weighs. And I say, I try not to think about that. <laughs> but one time I did weigh it, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was 77 pounds. Oh, Wow. And, and the thing is, though, it's not just 77 pounds on your back. It's 77 pounds on an arm that is standing out away from your body. And, so, and that's being transmitted through the vest to your body. And another question people will ask is, well, how's your back? And says, well, <laughs> the back's fine. It's really not much stress on your back. The, the real stress is on your lower body. So the weight sits on your hips, and then you, of course, carry it with your legs. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's, there's no stress on your arms. And your back, there's a little bit, you know, a little bit of stress on your back, but not that much. But at the end of a long day of operating Steadicam, where you feel it is your, your hips and your knees and your feet. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's a workout after a yeah. day of shooting, after yeah. a 12-hour day. <laughs> yeah. So as you've done this throughout the years, what's been one of the most fun projects? Well, toughest or and or most fun? The, well, the, the physically most grueling thing that I've ever done in my entire life, and that includes going through uh, Marine officer training, mm-hmm. was the Olympics in Atlanta in, in 1996. I did Steadicam during the uh, opening and closing ceremonies for NBC. Mm-hmm. And... That was, I don't know, I, I still don't remember how long that opening ceremony was, but the thing about the opening ceremonies of the Olympics is they have very limited commercial breaks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, you know, you don't, you don't get to hang it up very often. The nice thing about when you're shooting film, a 35-millimeter film camera goes through film at 90 feet a minute. And the standard load when you're on Steadicam is 400 feet. So you only can shoot about four and a half minutes on a roll of film. And then you have to stop and they have to reload the camera. With video, and especially live video, they can go on forever. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's no, there's no break. There's no, <laughs> there's no break. So uh, we did the whole opening ceremony. And then because it was a, the U.S. was hosting the Olympics, 
the U.S. team was going to be the last team to come out as they introduced the teams. And we were shooting in this, you know, big arena, kind of like a football field. There was a football field. Mm -hmm. And they had a ramp set up on one of the um, sides of the stadium. And the sports teams were coming up over that ramp and coming down this big, huge flight of stairs. And then they would march around the track and then end up on the infield and, and, you know, waited for all the teams to come out. Well, I was paired with a handheld guy, and then there was another pair of handheld guys. And we were leapfrogging with each team as they came out on the field. Mm -hmm. And so we would walk along with the team, and they would have us focus on different athletes so that the announcers could talk about them. And we would walk away, depending on how big the team is, we'd walk anywhere from 30, 40 yards up to maybe close to 80 yards with them down the track. And then we'd have to go back and pick up the next team. And we were alternating with a, another pair of guys. Oh, wow. And that, and that may, must have taken, I don't know, at least an hour of just nonstop back and forth, back wow. and forth, back and forth. So tell me about what are some of the most recent projects that you've been working on? One show that I worked on some this past year, which I really liked, called Preacher. And it is, it's based on a graphic novel. And here's something that shows you about the difference between states with and without incentives or subsidies. The first season of the show was set in Texas. But because Texas doesn't have film incentives or subsidies, and New Mexico does, the first season was shot in New Mexico. Oh, wow. And uh, a lot of things that you see that are supposedly set in Texas are actually shot somewhere else because because of the incentives, you know, like a, a film that was uh, got a lot of attention, a very small independent film, Dallas Buyers Club. Dallas Buyers Club was shot in Louisiana, in New Orleans. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, but um, I got to work on uh, uh, Preacher this last season in New Orleans, and it was a lot of fun. And it was a really, you know, I thought when I first started to work on it, I said, well, I better watch this show and see what mm-hmm. it's about. <laughs> and uh, and I really liked it. It's just it's very different. It's uh, it's kind of dark, but it's also got some humor to it. It's probably pretty blasphemous, but you know it's all in fun. Mm-hmm. And I highly recommend it. It's a, it's an interesting show. What kind of advice would you give to someone who might be interested? For our young listeners or students who are interested in film, what kind of advice would you give to someone who's looking to go into the film industry? It's, it's a little difficult to get into, and you're going to have to pay your dues. I've always said that the two most important things when you're starting out in the film business are punctuality and congeniality. Mm-hmm. If you do get hired, show up on time, which generally means uh, anywhere from 15 minutes to a half an hour early, mm-hmm. and be pleasant to work with. Nobody, when you're first starting out, nobody expects you to, to learn or to know everything when you start out. They all Everyone knows that when they started out, they didn't know anything. And and this business is pretty much all on-the-job training. There's film schools that you can go to that give a little bit more hands-on work. I've heard some good things about Full Sail in um, Florida. Mm -hmm. And if you really want to, you know, pursue it academically, you can go through some of the college programs for film production. But the other way is just to just start networking. 
you know, hang around rental companies, rental houses, you know, and mm-hmm. talk to the people that work there. You get a job in a rental house. You can learn by doing that. It's, it's a little difficult to get started. It, it took me a couple of years to really get going in it. And uh, there's no one right way that's better than any other way. But it just takes persistence and talking to people, networking, and doing whatever you can. That's great advice and can really apply to most any field. It's just being persistent and putting in that hard work. Yeah, it is. And, and, it's, and as I also mentioned earlier, it's, it's, it's a freelance business. And so it weeds out people that don't perform well. If you, know, if you don't do a good job, then word gets around and people just won't hire you. It, it can also be kind of a, a clickish business. And because most productions, especially the higher level ones, originate, even though they shoot in places like Atlanta and New Orleans, New Mexico, places like that, the production itself originates in L.A. That's really still where the industry is is seated. Mm-hmm. That's where it's centered. And so when they start building up a production, you know, they hire the highest level people first. And of course, the, the producer, the director, the director of photography are usually all from L.A., and, and a director of photography is going to want to hire somebody that he has worked with before, is a known quantity, or comes highly recommended to them. And so they will consequently, uh, even if they're going to shoot in New Orleans, they'll bring a guy from Los Angeles. When a, a production hires a person from Los Angeles to come and work in New Orleans, for instance, they, they have to pay for their travel out there. They have to pay to put them up in a hotel, and they have to pay them per diem. Mm. So it's, it's a lot of extra expense. Mm-hmm. But if it's a higher-budgeted film, then they say, well, we don't care. You know, it's not that big of a difference to us. But if you're a lower-budgeted film, then they, they're you know, counting every penny and, and trying to you know, keep their expenses down. So, so then they will hire a local Steadicam operator or whatever. But you know, Atlanta, New Orleans, New Mexico, and there's some other states. Those are the three that, that I know of that are probably the, the busiest outside of Los Angeles. That's good insight. Yeah, if, if you're really looking to get into this business, if you know somebody, go there. But if you don't know anybody, then I think first choice would be Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Well, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask a couple of fun TMI questions if you want to go down a, a trip down memory lane for you. Okay. <laughs> what is your best TMI memory? My best TMI memory? I think my, my best TMI memory is just the, just the friends uh, that I made there. I'm, I'm actually not really in contact with too many of them now, but at the time, it was just, again, it was that camaraderie. It was, it was, yes, we were in high school, but there was that kind of, you know, the fact that it was a military school at that, at that time, you know, everybody was in the military program and there was no girls there. It was all mm-hmm. male. And it was, you know, it was small. My graduating class was about a little over 50, I think. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's probably just a great experience. The small classes, the, the great teachers, uh, all of that was, was just probably the best thing. Well, tell me, what is, what is the most important lesson that DMI has taught you or prepared you for? Wow, most important lesson. Ah, that, that, that's kind of a tough one. I think that the first thing that comes to mind is that just 
always always do your best at whatever it is you're you're doing and also to to be open to new ideas don't automatically think that you already know something you always have to you know kind of keep an open mind that there might be something maybe there's something that uh, you think is one way but it really isn't mm-hmm. and then uh, also maybe there's something that you don't know at all you know that was one of the neat things about um TMI, we did get exposed to a lot of different people from different parts of the world, different parts of the mm-hmm. country, different parts of the state. Our professors were from, you know, different backgrounds and things. So it was, it was uh, very good in that way. TMI was, uh, was a really great experience. I think it probably still has the same intention of, you know, helping young people to develop and become mature and instill leadership qualities and and things like that. It's definitely true to its values of just preparing students for life to be good human beings and to be good servant leaders. Yep. It's it's a good place. Glad I went there. (laughs) (laughs) I am too, and I'm, I'm glad you took the time today to talk with me. So really, thank you again so much for for visiting with me. I really enjoyed getting to know you a little bit more and just a lot of fun stories. So thank you for sharing all those. Well, you're very welcome. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to TMI's PantherCast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please leave us a review on iTunes or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. We'd love to hear your feedback and show ideas. So leave us a comment, email, or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter using at TMI Episcopal. For more news, ways to connect, and to learn about upcoming events on campus, visit our website at www.tmi-sa.org.